Welcome to Future Makers, your invitation to cutting-edge debates on our changing society with leading researchers at the University of Oxford. I'm Peter Millikan, Professor of Philosophy, and thank you for joining us here in the Thomas Hobbes Room at Hertford College. Our first series is all about artificial intelligence, and so far we've been discussing the impact AI is already having on our world and where it might go in the future. But today, I'd like you to join me on a journey into the past. Many developments in science are achieved through people being able to stand on the shoulders of giants. And in the history of AI, two giants in particular stand out. Ada Lovelace, who inspired visions of computer creativity, and Alan Turing, who conceived machines which could do anything a human could do. So where do their stories, along with those of calculating engines, punched card machines and cybernetics fit into where artificial intelligence is today. With me to discuss this are Ursula Martin, Professor at the University of Edinburgh and a member of our own Mathematical Institute, Andrew Hodges, Emeritus Fellow at Wadham, who tutors for a wide range of courses in pure and applied mathematics, and Jacob Ward, a historian of science, technology and modern Britain, and a postdoctoral researcher in the history of computing. Welcome to you all, and thank you for coming. Oh, thank, thank you, you for having people. us. So, Ursula, I'd like to start with you and with Ada Lovelace. Can you tell us a bit about the intellectual ideas uh, that she put forward? Ada Lovelace has become a bit of a 21st century icon for all sorts of things. She's famous because of a paper she wrote describing a machine invented by Charles Babbage and never built, which he called the analytical engine. There was a whole slew of amazing ideas in that paper. But for today, I'd just like to pick out two that have been quoted a lot, have been kind of uh, have a contemporary resonance, perhaps almost that they didn't have at the time. And the first is where she writes... The analytical engine has no pretensions whatever to originate anything. It can do whatever we know how to order it to perform. It can follow analysis but has no power of anticipating any relations or truths. That's written in 1843, which is pretty amazing. I'm sure Andrew is going to pick up on what that has to do with Turing. But there she's saying... Here's a machine, it can do some kind of computation, but it can't be original, it can't originate things. But elsewhere in the paper, she talks about how the machine might compose music. Again, very extraordinary for 1843. It might act on things besides number, or objects found whose mutual fundamental relations could be expressed by those of the science of operations. Supposing the fundamental relations of pitched sounds in the science of harmony and music were susceptible to such expression... The engine might compose elaborate and scientific pieces of music of any degree of complexity or extent. Well, again, pretty amazing. Some contemporary writers getting a little over-enthusiastic have suggested that means she invented the CD. But if you go back and place that in its scientific context, 1840s, people had been inventing different kinds of machines to do arithmetic. Uh, for quite a long time, back into the 18th century. And people thought of those as, well, there was an awful lot of arithmetic to be done at the time. Everything to do with manufacturing, with weather forecasting, with shipping, huge, huge amounts of arithmetic to be done. The analytical engine was going to be a bit different. It wasn't just going to 
add up lots of numbers, it was going to manipulate more complicated formulas involving numbers. And where she refers to the science of operations, that's something more elaborate still. That's something we don't talk about so much in science today, but it was essentially a science of things that could operate on other things. So the machine could operate on the laws of music. But she doesn't really mean it's being creative. What she means is if you imagine classical rules for writing a fugue, you write your tune and then you invert it. You play it the other way up. That's a rule for transforming the tune. And if you've got enough rules, you can go on and on and on writing elaborate pieces of music. I don't think she would have called that creative, but that's elsewhere in the discussion. So, Ursula, we've got a history of calculating machines being made. And then along comes Charles Babbage, and his machine is more elaborate than previous machines. Can you say a little bit about how it's more elaborate? Well, the early machines, the early ideas for machines, you typed in two numbers and it multiplied them together very crudely. Babbage's machine, you gave it a list of instructions of all sorts of different things you could do with the numbers, which might include repeating sets of instructions. It might include many more complicated constructions of things you could do with the numbers. And then it produced an answer. And you fed these instructions in with punch cards. You fed those instructions in with punch cards, which was an idea he'd got from the way in which early looms, which could weave elaborate patterns, worked. Um, well, you can have an argument about how much he was anticipating ideas of modern computing. But in his terms, in Lovelace's terms, they felt that it could compute anything you might want to compute. Well, you can have a whole series of undergraduate lectures on what that sentence means, but that was the principle of it. And some say that Lovelace was more visionary in seeing the potential of the analytical engine than Babbage was himself. Do you think that's true? Uh, it's a difficult one. She was braver at articulating things than Babbage was. She wrote things down in the paper in a rather clear and articulate way that perhaps in Babbage only exist as comments in his, in his notebooks. But very often we've got a different concept of authorship, we've got a different concept of originality. She's articulating rather nicely ideas that were in the air either from Babbage or from other people. But, of course, there's a great incentive today to turn her into a good story. She's box office. Of course. And is it reasonable to say that there, for the first time, you have a kind of programmability, or at least the aspiration to programmability, and this science of operations, can that be seen as the beginnings of computer science? I think it certainly can. You go a long way back and explain where the science of operations came from. But that's rather visionary about what's happening. And I think, to give Lovelace credit, she's, she chooses to articulate that aspect of it. Whereas Babbage very often, so to speak, got caught up in talking about the ironmongery, where she didn't spend so much time thinking about the ironmongery. Andrew, let's now wind forward a long way to the 1930s and Alan Turing. Uh, could you say a bit about what he was doing? Right, well, I'll talk about what Alan Turing did in the 1930s, and then his thought developed a great deal after that, so we'll, we'll probably come to that later. But in the 1930s, the thing he did was to really clear up just the question we were thinking about just now, about what a, what a computer can do in modern terms. Of course, computers didn't exist then, but he thought about the question of what is the most general thing that you could call a method in modern terms, an algorithm. And his answer is essentially what we'd now say was a computer program. But computers didn't exist then, so in fact he had to sort of invent the computer in order to make sense of that definition. 
And that's one of the many things he did in a paper of 1936, which I think is now reasonably regarded as the foundation of modern computer science. It defines everything that you mean by what a computer program can do. And uh, it actually did much more than that. And one thing it did more than that was he brought in the concept of states of mind as part of his argument for why his definition was the best possible definition. He didn't have to do that. That wasn't what a Cambridge mathematician was meant to be doing. It was his thing. I mean, he was very deeply concerned with the nature of mind and went well beyond mathematics. He went into philosophy or psychology, and he also went, as he later went on, into engineering. He was not confined to mathematics. And that's what he did. And that's the states of mind is why it comes in now when we're thinking about the origins of the concepts of artificial intelligence. Mind comes in right away. Now, in fact, he didn't make any great claims at that stage for what he was saying about the mind. He was just thinking about the mind following a rule, a mind carrying out some explicit set of, of procedures had to be gone through. So he's trying to characterise in the most general possible way all the different computable procedures that a mind could go through. That's right. His word, he invents this word, computable, really, gives it a technical meaning. And he can define that some things are computable and others are not computable. Could I ask you to say a little bit more? The actual title of the paper is On Computable Numbers with an Application to the Entscheidungsproblem, which sounds pretty fearsome. (laughs) Uh, Can can you just sketch out for listeners what that's all about? I'll sketch out the bits of that. The fact that numbers came into it is interesting, but it's not absolutely essential to what he was doing or the concept of the Turing machine, which he developed in this paper. The operations of the theoretical Turing machine don't actually involve numbers specifically at all. They could be any symbols. Computability then is a technical definition which he introduces, which is essentially different from just saying something is uniquely defined or described. It means something that can actually be done. It has this sort of physical meaning to it, which later did indeed turn into engineering. The German word you mentioned, Entscheidungsproblem, that's the German for decision problem, and that relates to the specific problem in mathematical logic he was addressing, which we're not really so concerned with here, but I will say that it's the culmination at that point of centuries of thought about how to make reasoning into something mathematical, something that started, I suppose, with the, well, with the classical logicians, but then with Leibniz and his followers through the centuries. And uh, Turing was able to show that a great difficulty that had arisen actually gave rise to a marvellous discovery, and that's the discovery of the concept of the universal machine, which makes explicit the kind of things that Babbage and Lovelace had thought about 100 years before, the, the, the aspiration of a machine that can do anything uh, that you put to it. And he was able to describe this completely explicitly. And it was, uh, there's no argument about it. It's remained uh, a great constant in mathematical thought ever right. since. So, so he introduces the Turing machine, which is a very, very simple computer, and he characterises exactly what operations that is able to do. And then he shows that there's a, a universal version of this where you can have a, a, a Turing machine which, as it were, reads a programme from its own store and it can simulate any other programme at all. But what was the point of this in the context of his paper? Well, the context of this in his paper is to resolve this question of what is the most general kind of method. But I'll say something a bit more constructive than that. It actually used the discovery of Kurt Gödel in 1931, 
of the, uh, the fact that there are undecidable mathematical propositions. And he turned that into something new, more constructive. What he showed was that, um, we see Gödel has shown that you could encode theorems and propositions about numbers as numbers. What Turing did was to show that you must encode instructions on what to do with numbers into numbers. And there's really no distinction between the instructions and the numbers, between instructions and data, between symbols which mean things to do and symbols which mean the things on which you're doing the operations. That's the thing which I should say Babbage and Lovelace didn't see. They had instructions and stored numbers or symbols completely separate. But nowadays we take it for granted if you download something, download an app, the app arrives as a stream of data and your computer has to sort out, your phone has to sort out that it is instructions and store it and then use it and apply it and copy it, translate it, do all the things that it does. You're hardly aware of it now, but it's absolutely essential to the workings of modern computing that the instructions are themselves a form of data. That's what Turing got. Can I just try and defend Lovelace a bit here, perhaps? If you've got the idea of a jacquard loom, you've got instructions encoded in one form, but Lovelace was thinking of encoding things like musical notes using numbers. And you were also mentioning, Ursula, that, that she was thinking of encoding mechanisms for, for example, inverting the, the subject in a fugue. Was she thinking perhaps of encoding some of those instructions as numbers or, or not? I don't think she was. So Turing made that notion very precise. It's very easy because Turing is writing clearly and articulately in the form of a 20th century mathematician. Lovelace is often writing rather loosely, rather metaphorically. Um, you know, you, you can prick out a string of words in there that might suggest, oh, yes, yes, you know, she was uh, the, the program was going to be used as data, but... Uh, uh, not, not in, the, not in the same way. I think. Okay, so we've got quite an uh, an important shift here. Mm. We've got Gödel first of all encoding formulae and indeed sequences of formulae, okay. proofs okay. as single numbers for his purposes, and then we've got Turing encoding instructions in that way. And is that a, an absolute novelty? Do you think, Andrew? Is it was at the time. I mean, the funny thing about it is, although it relies on this absolutely abstruse aspect of pure mathematics, and even pure mathematicians at the time would have thought Gödel's work was at the far end of abstruseness and purity of mathematics. It comes down to something which is actually very easy to explain, and when in the 1940s it came into the new generation of electronic computers that we now recognise as, as modern computers, it's easy to say. You put the instructions in the store along with the data and you organise your hardware to read it and carry it out. Lovelace and Babbage would have obviously understood it. if you'd. It's yeah. just that it didn't occur to them to think that way, I think. They were, they were thinking differently in a, in, in, in a different kind of context. And you can trace this in the technology of the 30s and 40s as well, that there were big calculating machines built in the 1930s and during the Second World War, and they failed to adopt this idea... Um, huge money was invested in building such machines. And in 1945, it was realised that the right thing to do was to put the, what we now say, a modifiable stored programme to incorporate it. And, uh, the, uh, and that's what happened. The that was concept the concept of software. That was, and then you have the concept of software, uh, and software which can read other software, and which is absolutely essential now. And that all starts in 1945. 
Right. Thank you. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. But Jacob, I'd like you to take the story forward into the early years of cybernetics and leading up to really the development of a recognisable field of AI. Thank you. And I think where I'll start is actually at the end, or at least at the, the end of the beginning of AI, which is where effectively you get two approaches to thinking, or well, how can we get a machine to think? And the first is, well, let's make a machine which works like a brain sort of a, a biological computer, a computer that is modeled on a biological system. And the other way is, well, let's get a computer to simulate a mind. So let's not worry about making a machine which works exactly like a brain does. Let's instead write a program or some form of, of, of software, which we can then run on a computer, which will process information like a mind does. And that comes out of the birth of this discipline called cybernetics during World War II and after World War II, where there's two main ways of thinking about systems and here by systems I sort of mean both machines and humans and machines and humans working together and that's well how can we think about how these systems are controlled and how do the components of these systems communicate with each other and so that leads to thinking about things in terms of information is is there a universal language of information which we can get all of these components to talk to each other with and how can we quantify that information and make sure that messages have the most information possible in, the most useful information possible? And also, what's the biology of these systems? Do humans, do they think like we could, machines might think? Or can we create machines which work like humans do? And so it sort of speaks to this theme we've had of, of generality. Sort of how can we make these components and these systems speak to each other in universal languages, which we can then sort of make function according to the, the needs of the system. And that then d evolves into these two lines of artificial intelligence, as I've talked about. One AI that is sort of brain modeling, and the other, which is mind modeling. Which figures would you particularly draw our, our attention to over the, that period? The sort of so-called father of cybernetics is an American, Norbert Wiener, who worked at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And the sort of source of his ideas was he, he was working during World War II on how can we get anti-aircraft guns to better predict where an airplane that's dodging and weaving about will go so we can shoot it down. And that involves sort of two sets of, of humans and, and machines. You've got the aircraft and its pilot, and you've got the anti-aircraft gun and the people who are firing the gun. And so it's thinking about how do they all communicate with each other and how do they respond to each other to make sure that the anti-aircraft gun can properly predict where the plane is going. And that touches on a very important component of cybernetics, which I haven't mentioned yet, which is the idea of feedback. So that's the idea that with a feedback loop, you can see where the gun is going to go. And if that gun is going to move too far in one direction, you can take that movement and input it back into the beginning of the loop, the person who's controlling it or the computer that's controlling the gun and correct in the next movement of the gun. So you've got this system which effectively self-regulates and generates its own sort of stability which shapes cybernetics, this idea that we can use feedback to control systems and generate self-stabilizing systems. And that's very important in informing, well, how might we think about creating a machine that is a mind? Uh, that needs to be a stable system which adjusts to its own outputs. We've actually got the context of warfare generating needs, which then spur the development of more intricate machinery but then you're saying that because of the nature of that particular task, it actually can inspire thinking about how to model a brain. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the war was uh, a very important part of this research. As, as I've mentioned, Wiener was working on anti-aircraft guns, but it didn't come out of the blue. There was a lot of research into brain sciences going on, which was informing this sort of thinking going on already. So in Britain, there were sort of neurophysiologists thinking about, well, how does the brain adapt to its surroundings? So you do have people coming from the sort of biology side of things as well beforehand. And they, and they do meet during World War II, not in the least because during World War II, a lot of biologists were put to work working on war projects. There's a British figure, Kenneth Craig, who was a psychologist at Cambridge, who is some regards sort of, sort of as the one of the forgotten fathers of cybernetics. And he was having very similar ideas to Norbert Wiener at the time, but unfortunately died in a bicycle accident on the last day of the war in Europe. His uh, ideas were only published several years after the war, but he specifically was thinking about what is the place of a human operator in a control system, in a machine system, and thinking about anti-aircraft guns as well. So you've got this convergence of ideas, which is sort of galvanised by war. One can imagine that ideas that come from the, the technological side, how to implement a computer that does some clever thing, and ideas from modelling the brain... They're quite a long way apart, but cybernetics embraced both of those. Did it bring them together much? Yes, absolutely. So cybernetics provided this space for researchers from these different disciplines to come and meet together. And you had series of meetings both in the USA and in Britain, which provided opportunities for all these people from very different backgrounds to meet. So in the USA, you had a series of conferences called the Macy Conferences, which is where Norbert Wiener attended. Warren McCulloch was there, and he was a neurophysiologist, and he was at the University of Illinois Medical School. And so he was coming at things from the nervous system side of things. And then in the UK, you had a, a club, a dining club called the Ratio Club. Uh, in which... <laughs> yes, though, though quite, quite forward-looking, I would say. I mean, you weren't allowed to be a member if you were a full professor. It was... <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'd be the only eligible one at the table. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, the other criterion was that you um, had to have thought of ideas similar to cybernetics before Wiener published his book on the subject. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had to be a, a member of a certain narrow slice of yeah. humanity. Which Absolutely. But, but, in, in, yeah. but in fact, Turing was part of that narrow slice of humanity, and yeah. he was one of the founding members of the Ratio Club. And, and how far did Turing's ideas, and indeed Babbage and, and Lovelace's ideas, how far influential were they in the cybernetics movement? Turing was, because he was actively involved in this community and he circulated both in the UK and the USA and he informed um, a lot of the ideas. I think Wiener mentions, I think, Turing in the dedication to his book Cybernetics or at least one of his other publications and uh, one of the other people instrumental in the founding of Cybernetics was an engineer called Claude Shannon. His ideas about information and how you can get information systems talking together came from his work on cryptography in World War II where he worked at the Bell Telephone Laboratories in the USA. And in fact, Turing visited the Bell Labs whilst Shannon was working on this thing. And there's um, there's there's a, a history which sort of says something like they, they had secretive lunchtime meetings every day at Bell Telephone Laboratories. So Turing absolutely is actively involved in this field. With Lovelace, I don't think at first you see an explicit influence, but, and this is something that Andrew might want to jump in on, when Turing writes his paper in 1950, about you know, can machines think or what is the best way to go about answering that question that's when Lovelace explicitly enters the conversation and so as an as a as an objection he calls it the Lovelace objection to to whether machines can think and so that's when Lovelace enters the conversation about these subjects 
Do you want to say anything on that, Andrew? Well, we've jumped on in, in Turing's <laughs> career because I, I stuck rather so, to what he did so, in the 1930s. But let me, let me, let me parallel what Sir Jacob has been saying by the influence of the Second World War on Turing's thought, which was very profound because, miraculously, he became the chief scientific figure in the British code-breaking department, which started off in 1938, well before the war started, and uh, had great success. As everyone knows, he's now very famous. But in particular, I mean, he was divining, devising machines or else what we call algorithms. I mean, there were people operating systems which, in a mechanical way, in particular using what we call Bayesian inference to, uh, to make guessing into something which is scientific, very similar to what AI systems sometimes do now in guessing and predicting what's going to happen. And it was clear that he was very, very struck by the power of algorithms to do what outdo what traditional people had been doing in the code-breaking world. Even there at Bletchley Park in 1941-42, he was talking about the prospects of machines doing far more. And as time went on, and as he developed his own ideas for building computers in 1946-47 so on, he became more and more outspoken and interested and engaged in the question of what the limits were until in 1950, in the paper that you've mentioned, where a lot of this came together, Turing really took a view that he couldn't see any limit. I mean, that he that uh, he couldn't see why there was a limit to everything that the brain does is something that could be done uh, by an algorithm. And if it could be done by an algorithm, then it could be done on a universal machine, which is a computer. That's his argument. That's the paper which is best known, I think, today. It has this famous test in it, uh, which we haven't mentioned yet, I think... Uh, I'd suggest we come back to that. We'll come back to that. Let's go go back in history a bit first, because one thing that I think is quite important here is we've got that a lot of what's going on in cybernetics and Turing's work is actually government funded and moreover stimulated by by war. Uh, What about Babbage's work? Babbage became a joke in his lifetime because, first of all, he had all these wonderful ideas. He was very good initially at persuading the government to give him money, but he wasn't actually very good at project management or delivering the machine that he wanted to deliver. His work was funded by the government for a particular purpose. It was funded what, what was by the. the it was funded. It was funded by the government because of the value of the machine in any kind of purpose involving massive calculation, um, log tables were the basis of all other kinds of calculation, um, but also. If you think about everything that was going on in the 19th century, uh, the growth of industry, the growth of insurance, the growth of scientific approaches to phenomena that had previously been studied in a rather ad hoc way, all of that required a great deal of hand calculation. And the motivation was that this machine would replace armies of clerks and do the calculation in a more scientific and organised way. Babbage was quite inspired by factories and the idea that you know, factories were an organised way of, of of making things, which work, work much better than, or more efficiently than individual craftsmen, and that you would apply a similar thing to producing tables of numbers, to doing these massive calculations. Ursula, can you give an example of the sort of calculation that the government would have been keen on Babbage performing with his engines? Well, if you look at what was going on at what became the Greenwich Observatory, astronomical calculations. There was great concern about bugs in those kind of calculations. Uh, to some extent, Babbage was assisted by a number of people who are great marketers. And they their piece of marketing was, hey, there are all sorts of bugs in published tables. We need this machine so the tables could be accurate. They were important for the scientific 
study of astronomy, which indirectly was so important for navigation, yes. But the analytical engine became Babbage's pet project, which he obsessed about, he thought about all his life. It drove a number of the other things that he did. The difference engines were rather more concrete and rather more easy to convince people that they might work. Um, indeed, he built little tiny prototypes. He used to have soirees where he demonstrated the prototypes. There's even a prototype in the Museum of the History of Science, a teeny tiny thing that would just multiply together two three-digit numbers, but, you, you know. We have Babbage um, approaching the government and saying, Here, here's this engine, the difference engine, it's going to do these wonderful calculations. He, he gets the money to support this, but then actually his interests take off in all sorts of different directions. Um, I think you have to think about the context of Victorian science, the context of Victorian engineering. It wasn't professionalised in the way it is today. You had all kinds of scientific interests bubbling around. You had people pursuing many different things, and intellectual figures, Lovelace, Babbage, Somerville, who'd be interested in all of them and talking about all of them. And Babbage in particular, you can, you can waste years of your life looking through Babbage's correspondence uh, because he just was interested in everything. He was interested in big data. He wanted the British Museum, which is now the British Library, to collect financial data, to collect data on trains. In fact, he used the fact that the train companies were so good at organising their data to say, if we collected government data on all sorts of other things, you know, just think how efficient the government could be. I don't think he really... Can, he, was a bit of a, he was a bit of a spent force by then, but... but um, yes, that's but, so, but, his... we get, but we get a bit of a mixed impression, don't we? A, a genius with all sorts of visionary ideas, but uh, uh, unfortunately never actually manages to bring the big project to fruition. Now, Turing, I, I have the impression that Turing, while he was busy doing very important work breaking the codes, the Enigma codes and so forth... He was also thinking about lots of other things which bore fruit in due course, Andrew. Well, certainly during the later stages of the war, uh, I mean, in 1944-45, I'm pretty sure he was planning his design for the what became the ACE, the Automatic Computing Engine, uh, the word engine incidentally chosen uh, in uh, to refer to the great analytical engine for 100 years before. So, uh, so uh, does that mean so, that in those days people would have looked back on the analytical engine as a great vi visionary idea rather I, than a, a joke? I don't know. I think it was a legend. Uh, I Certainly it was known about. In fact, in 1945, well, there was this naming of, of Turing's project by the National Physical Laboratory as the automatic computing engine, which definitely is an allusion to Babbage's project, uh, but also uh, one of the big... American calculators was hailed as being Babbage's dream come true, which it wasn't really. But anyway, <laughs> but the point is, the, the, there was an idea. There'd been this great British dream in the past, and people liked, liked the idea of this very much. I don't think that it, these ideas we've been talking about were really studied until a bit later in the 40s. That's my, that's my impression. And I don't think they had direct influence at all on Turing. Um, in the 1930s, it's an interesting question. There's no trace in language or references to, to, to Babbage or Lovelace in his early writing. And what about Turing? I mean, Turing obviously had huge influence. He is commonly attributed with the foundation of computer science as a modern discipline as we understand it. But what about his specific designs for computers? He was very quick off the mark at the end of the war. 
and so was the National Physical Laboratory. They, they started a project very smartly, greatly stimulated by the parallel American efforts, which is really another story again, which we could spend an hour on, I suppose. But they were quick off the mark. They got a project going. I mean, considering the country was you know, basically bankrupt and ruined, it was absolutely amazing now that they are able to take on such a huge futuristic project so quickly and took on Turing to design it. And this was big public news as well. I mean, Turing was, was on uh, radio broadcasts and newspapers about how this project was starting. There's no secret about this. It was, it was smartly done, but it didn't get off to a very quick start in the actual engineering. Turing was very frustrated with the pace of development. I mean, he was too optimistic about the speed at which things could be done. He was used to the wartime environment in which there was no bureaucracy. I mean, it was, everything was done extremely quickly. And this wasn't really possible in 1946. Jacob? Yes, I just wanted to um, ask, from what I understand, Turing also was perhaps restricted in working on the engineering side of the project as well. I just wonder if that was relevant. I mean, how much was Turing's ideas to do both the sort of more theory and the actual practical engineering? Well, that's a very interesting question. Turing was unusual. He was a mathematician. People would have called him a pure mathematician. But he wasn't really. He was a very much a generalist. And he had a real yen, I mean, a real interest in getting his hands on things. But he wasn't trained engineer and he wasn't, he wasn't particularly good at it. But he was very unusual. And he had this great sort of connection between abstract thinking and actually getting things done. So he's in the right sphere, but he was not in a position to say this is how it should be engineered. And he'd learned about electronics. He'd done far more than most mathematicians would ever do. But he wasn't really in a position to say this is this is the design, this is what we're going to do, and we have this part and this part and this part and so forth. The National Physical Laboratory, I mean, was divided. It was a very class-based thing, really. It was, I mean, we could go back into British history for this, uh, for the whole background to this. The mathematicians were on one side and the engineers were on a completely different department. They did not work together at first, and they did later on, but Turing was dissatisfied with this, and in fact, he jumped ship and went off to Manchester in 1948. Nevertheless, the project was still a success. I mean, it was still it was still a very early and very rapid response to the new ideas. And but in terms of his influence on what happened later and the birth of AI, would you say it was more his visionary ideas, as for example in the 1950 paper, rather than the technical developments of the computer that really made a big difference? Well, Turing turned towards promulgating some of his AI ideas partly because I think he was frustrated with the actual physical building. So, in fact, he went off to Cambridge in 1947 specifically to think about these ideas rather than stay at the NPL where he felt things weren't moving very quickly. As regards his influence, I mean, he knew all the time that the hardware designs that were put out in 1945 were absolutely transient and they would be swept away by new technology. He placed no great emphasis on doing that. He said the thing was to do it have a go, and then do something better later on. So he wouldn't have been expecting to be remembered for this one design that he did in 1945-46. I would say that really the ideas of software, where he was miles ahead, and he was head of the American developments at that time, he saw the idea of what we now call software, that you'd have software libraries, that we have software interpreting other software so that you could write in a form as people do now in a kind and of... And this is basically you know. following on from his idea of a universal machine. Yes, it exploits uh, the universality. And absolutely. presumably, yes. precisely because he has that yeah. idea, that's why he thinks the details of the hardware don't matter so exactly. much. Exactly, exactly. That is yeah. that is right. And he's very aware that the universal machine needs a lot of hardware to make it work. You have to have all the hardware to read the instructions and carry them out. 
Uh, and you can't get away from that. There's sort of minimum complexity. And you need electronic speed to make it a practical thing. That's also extremely important, that digital electronics were only just available. They were absolutely cutting edge. They'd been used the first time effectively in 1944 for the code-breaking work and parallel American things. And it was absolutely trial stuff. I mean, no one really knew that it would work on, the, on this scale. So, Jacob, sorry. Uh, I, was, I, I mean, it's easy to forget, I think, that the way in which memories lived on of what was done wasn't necessarily through scientific papers or through you know, intellectual circulation of ideas. Often it was through actual practice. So you see, even though Babbage's machine didn't work, there was still a heck of a lot of computation to be done. There were people doing computation with various mechanical hand machines. And what lived on was the idea of schemata for organizing your calculation, sharing your data, storing your data on paper, later on, on punch cards of different kinds. You get pioneers thinking about ways of organizing calculations, but calculations done by people. Those things live on, of course, all the way through the late 19th, early 20th century. And that is perhaps where some of these ideas survived in practice. One of the big pioneers in the uh, 30s, for instance, was someone called Comrie. He start, started doing all sorts of calculation for different parts of government, different industries, which made people realise the value of efficiently organised computation before there were machines to do the computation on. And so some of the earliest uses of, users of physical computers were the crystallographers. The crystallographers have been doing massive hand computation. I've been doing a bit of research into how computing came to Oxford. The person who advocated it most was the crystallographer Dorothy Hodgkin. She needed a computer to do crystallography computations and she made sure Oxford bought a decent, <laughs> decent yes, one the, of the, the early commercial They were computers. also the first users of the Manchester machine when it was mm. first working in uh, 1951. So, uh, that, that, and okay. there were big needs for computation, yes. Uh, uh, so uh, I'm going to ask Jacob more uh, a, a bit uh, about this period. You've seen various influences coming through from the calculating engines and Turing's theoretical ideas and, and to some extent those go in different directions because one is focusing on, on hardware, one is focusing on software. And we've seen that you mentioned with cybernetics, you've got the modelling of the brain as well as thoughts about computation. Can you say a bit about how all these themes fed through into the late 40s, early 50s? You have a great deal of work thinking, well, it builds off 19th century and early 20th century work, saying, is there a way we can represent logic, not just in terms of words, as philosophers do, but can we represent logic mathematically? And if you have a mathematical way of representing logic, then what does that open up in terms of possibilities in sort of electronics and electrical engineering, but then also in biological research during World War II and before World War II, in fact, as well? You have, a, I mentioned Claude Shannon earlier. He comes up with a way of using mathematical logic to describe electrical circuits, which for him was helpful because he was interested in electrical engineering. And as I mentioned earlier, he went to work for Bell Telephone Laboratories. So you, if you can represent electrical circuits, as a logic system, then that gets built on even further by another researcher called Walter Pitts, also in America, who says, well, can we also talk about nerves and the nervous system as electric circuits? Because if you can then talk about the nervous system as electric circuits, and you can talk about electric circuits as a logic system, then effectively, you've got one way of saying, well, we can represent human reasoning, which the assumption was that human reasoning is, is logical. We can talk about... <laughs> <laughs> How naive. Yeah. <laughs> 
this is the assumption which underpins a lot of this research. If you can represent human reasoning mathematically, and you can use this mathematical system to represent both electric circuits and the nervous system, brains, it presumably therefore follows that you can use an electrical circuit, a series of electrical circuits, to create your own form of brain. And so that's what brings all of these things together. This is building off the computation and mathematical logic of the mid-19th century at Babbage's time. This is building off Turing's work as well. It's all about thinking how can we get logic and reasoning, electrics and, uh, and electronics and, um, and biology together. It's one of the great sort of what-ifs. One friend of Babbage and Lovelace was Wheatstone. Wheatstone is already doing his early experiments in the 1840s. It was Wheatstone who submitted the Babbage-Lovelace paper for publication. But, of course, the Babbage-Lovelace thing is entirely mechanical. It's digital. You represent numbers to base 10. That conversation didn't happen. And similarly, this slew of ideas in the mid-19th century about electricity, the connection between electricity and the mind. Lovelace was thinking about that towards the end of her life. She wrote these extraordinary letters where she was thinking, well, what if you could model the electrical, so to speak, workings of the nervous system? What if you had a calculus of the nervous system? She never did any work on that, but it's the what-ifs of history. It's the ideas that people were exploring that didn't develop or couldn't develop that are sometimes absolutely fascinating and help us contextualise things differently. And also, if you're thinking about modern questions about AI, it's sometimes interesting to jump back and think about AI or thinking about human thought in a different context to see, okay, how do you think about things in a totally different context? So I've got to get God in here. <laughs> because if you go back to the famous quote of Lovelace where she says, you know, it can only do how we, or we order it to perform. Well, what's she doing there? She's hedging against God. You know, this is the 1840s, huge debates about religion, about, you know, we're moving on to discussions about evolution, suddenly geological discoveries that seem to challenge the Bible. And so what she says further back in the paper is basically, no, no, the machine isn't challenging God. It's helping us understand God's works better. So you think there's a theological agenda behind her saying that the analytical engine can't originate anything. It's positioning herself in a contemporary debate. So she actually says, those who thus think on mathematical truth as the instrument through which the weak mind of man can most effectually read his creator's work will regard with special interest all that can facilitate the translation of its principles into practical forms. She's defending herself that way. Whereas if you look at Mary Shelley... How did I get Mary Shelley in here? Well, Mary Shelley's going a completely different way. Mary Shelley's saying, look, what happens? Frankenstein, the scientist Frankenstein, he creates what he calls his creature. Mary Shelley faces it head on. She doesn't hide behind and say, no, 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 I'm not even trying to challenge God. I'm just, you know, I'm just working out mathematical formula. Honest God. Mary Shelley says, look, you create the creature. The creature, if you remember what happens, the creature just goes around killing everybody who Frankenstein holds dear. And then, well, who's responsible for that. Frankenstein, the creature, God, you know, and then towards the end of the book, Frankenstein gets a bit, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't, there's a risk in doing all this science, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing all this science at all, but then he said, well, maybe somebody else will make a better job than I, than, than I did of it. So, uh, some, some thoughts hmm? prompted by what hmm? you've said, Ursula. You talk about the what-ifs of history, yeah. and some people might claim that certain technological changes are more or less inevitable. Mm -hmm. You know, had certain people not had the ideas someone else would, we'd still have got to the same place. 
And that might be suggested by the thought that back in the 19th century, there were certain ideas that couldn't fly because you know, they were dangerous theologically or whatever. On the other hand, we've been talking about people whose ideas seem quite revolutionary. And Andrew, if Turing hadn't come up with his ideas, would somebody else have come up with them there or thereabouts? I mean, it could very well be. I mean, it was very, very chancy that Turing came to this problem and did something about it in 1936. There was no inevitability at all. He was out on a limb in the Cambridge world. The lectures which he'd been to, which inspired this, were themselves out on a limb. I mean, he was very odd and unusual in many ways. So, so it could well have not happened. Um, well, another Polish-American logician, Emil Post, came up with a model um, of what he called a, a worker, uh, which would be carrying out logical operations. Now, he didn't extend that anything like as far as Turing had done with the Turing machine concept, but that gives a picture of how other people at the same time were looking for this connection between the world of logical discrete operations and something that would actually give an effect to something, something that would actually do something. And I think that would have happened. In other words, someone else would have done that. And on the stored program, I think that probably would have come about through engineering demands that the, it would have been realised that it was much more efficient to store the program along with the data. But it would have taken some time for people to realise that that had any connection with the fundamentals of computing. You were doing something that wasn't just a convenience, but actually was giving you the complete gamut of everything that could be done uh, as a computation. And can I ask you about the theological side. I mean, if we read the 1950 paper where Turing is, is arguing that computers can think, Robin Gandhi, who was a very close friend of his and student of his, said that Turing wrote this in a very light-hearted spirit. And if you read his comments there on the theological objection and so on, it looks like he's treating them with some disdain. Did he run into much trouble from that direction? Well, one interesting thing is uh, that there was a lot of public interest in the prospects of artificial intelligence right from 1946. I mean, it was announced in the newspapers, there'd be electronic brains and then people would say, oh, no, 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 this is, you know, uh, and so you know, making just these sort of connections right from the start. And in fact, Turing's writing the paper in the way he did and the radio broadcast he did afterwards was in response to that great public interest. He, these were not just academic papers. He was part. Of, he knew he was part of a whole, a whole surge in in, in thought and historical change. So he was well aware of that type of objection. It's a very natural objection, and the objection is basically, I don't feel like a machine. I mean, I feel I'm free. I feel I am personality. You know, all these things. And I've got a soul. Absolutely. Mm, yeah. Even if it's whether it's formalised religiously as the soul, or whether it's just people thinking about free will and independence of mind and not being constrained, not feeling like a machine. I mean, it's a very, very, you know, central objection which he had to deal with and was very, very aware of. And I'm sure he thought about an enormous amount during the wartime period on his own, finding um, arguments. So he has various arguments. And I agree that he, there are lots of jokes in his paper. And actually, that's part of the content in a way, because there's a subsext to the way he writes about what he called intelligent machinery, which is that he's also saying, I know what it is to be human. And he doesn't actually say that explicitly, but that comes out in all the examples and illustrations and jokes and ironies and poking fun. When he's talking about a machine imitating what human intelligence is like, he doesn't mean just being clever at chess or clever at proving theorems. No, and he, he instances uh, he, he, composing a sonnet. And exactly. Uh, that's rather all, an entertaining that's, conversation And that's a that. sort of senior common room joke, if you like, you see, with the arts people who say, oh, no, a machine can never do that, you see. 
but he's bringing the computer world into human life. And he's saying, I'm, I may be a nerd, if you like, but I know what it is to be human. And of course, he certainly did know. What it, I mean, that's Indeed, true. absolutely. And that's a very interesting second layer. And that's indeed is why his paper is readable and often quoted and studied by people people now. I'd like to move back to cybernetics a bit, and J- Jacob, if I may, because we, we've got here two different sides in Turing's paper uh, and, and Turing's work. On one side, the analytical logic, and on the other side, the human mind and brain with all its creativity and apparent behaviour that isn't so logical. Now, in the 1950s, people didn't always see these as linking together very easily. You've got the logical trend and also the connectionist uh, line, which, which comes from more modelling the brain. Can you say a bit more about how those linked or the tension between them and how they develop? On the, the logic side, what, what's interesting is that you do have these, these models of, of human reasoning as, as logical, as I mentioned earlier. And they go back to Aristotle and, ab- ab- and beyond, ab- yes. Absolutely. And so what you actually have in the um, late 1950s is an attempt to create the logic theory machine, which is by um, two American researchers, Herbert Simon and Alan Newell. It's trying to develop a sort of very primitive early form of, of artificial intelligence. Can you get a machine to reason? What they sort of butt up against is, well, that would take a very long time to simulate human reasoning because a human when they're going through a mathematical problem or then trying to work something out they don't go through every possible permutation step by step and and work it out completely logically that would take millennia instead what humans do is they use things called heuristics rules of thumb and they sometimes sort of work backwards They, they have a gut instinct about where they might end up and they try and work backwards to see how how they would get there through through logic through reasoning and so they attempt to build this into a machine called the logic theory machine. And the, the interesting thing about this is that this ties into one of Simon's theories, which is called bounded rationality. And that's the idea that humans, they are rational, but there's, there's a bound on that. There's a limit to that because a human can only process so much information. The human mind can only comprehend so much information. And if you try and get beyond that, it, it's going to be a constraint on how rational they are. And that's what you can see going on with the logic theory machine in terms of let's not do everything 100% logically step by step from the start let's find rules of thumbs that human use, humans use in their reasoning and simulate that on a machine and the other sort of key development which comes out of that is a machine a computer they were using a computer at the American think tank Rand called Johnniac which was a tribute to John von Neumann sort of one of the fathers of modern computing that computer isn't going to work like a human brain does so you've got to come up with a way of structuring these heuristics and this reasoning to work on the computer and so they come up with a computer language to do that. And that creates these things called linked lists and what would be now known as data structures. And these are all things which are present in many modern computer languages. So you've got all of these systems and devices which are used to try and create this form of computer reasoning, which shape modern programming languages. And so you can still see today sort of the traces of this. Let's not worry about modeling a brain. Let's think about how a human mind processes information and create a program which can do that and there are traces of that in in computing all all over now and then on the other side of things as you mentioned there are the sort of connectionist approaches which are brain modeling let's create a machine which is like a brain and the i guess the main thrust of that was a thing called neural nets let's hook up all of these electronic components to try and create a neural network which works like a brain does you do get a lot of research going into this Uh, i think one of the sort of main developments that happened there was a thing called the perceptron which has a very 50s sounding name. That was developed by a researcher um, at Cornell, again in the USA. 
And that was trying to create a machine which would use photo cells, uh, to, which were light sensitive, to detect shapes, and then process that through something which looked like a, a neural network to then have a machine which could recognize shapes later on and learn. And that, that does make some advances. It, in fact, it, it informs some very interesting, so almost prosaic research in the UK. So um, the National Physical Laboratory, which we've talked about where Turing worked, they get very interested in perceptrons for a very Cold War reason, which is they want something which can recognize and then translate Russian text for obvious reasons in the Cold War. And they don't get quite far with that. But another area where it does make some headway is um, in optical character recognition. So that's a machine which can recognize letters and numbers written on paper. And that's very important for the post office because they're developing postcodes at the time. And so you get something like a postcode, which is very trivial, but it's actually being informed by what you could call very early basic artificial intelligence research, making machines which look like brains in the USA. Perceptrons, unfortunately, they sort of don't get that far at the time because there's a book which comes out at the end of the 60s called Perceptrons, which it's called perceptrons, but it's not really for perceptrons. It sort of out outlines all of their limitations. And unfortunately, Rosenblatt, who was the guy behind perceptrons at Cornell, then dies a couple of years later in a boating accident. So perceptrons die off a little bit. But as we're seeing now, neural networks are back in a big way. And so the, the brain modeling side of things is definitely back. And it's it lived on in between in postcodes. Are we now seeing the two sides of artificial intelligence coming together? I think that goes back to, is the concern really with how it works under the hood, so to speak? As, as Turing said, is it just about, can it imitate a human being? And in that case, the, the concern is less with what's it doing behind the curtain and more with how it performs. And I think with Turing, I think it'd be interesting to, to see what he thought of, of the, this development, because he was very obviously keenly aware of this split between the, the brain modeling side of things and, and the mind modeling side of things. I think he probably personally thought mind modeling was a little bit better because they worked on digital computers and he was so uh, central to the development of digital computers. I guess a lot of inspiration for computational ideas has come one way or another from how we think, but, but not necessarily from the brain architecture. But presumably the, the neural nets did aim, at, at least initially its inspiration was precisely the brain architecture. Exactly. I think that was as advertised. I think you had a lot of approaches which did proclaim to be on that brain modeling side, uh, neural networks and so on, which said they worked as, as biology did. One classic example which got a lot of press attention at the time was a robotic mouse called Theseus, which was uh, developed in the late 1940s, early 1950s by Claude Shannon, the researcher I mentioned earlier. Theseus was effectively a, a wooden block with an electromagnetic motor <laughs> in, and, and, and he placed it in a maze. It had little copper whiskers, which would detect when it hit up against a wall in that maze. So then it could find a path through the maze. And the first time it would go through that, it would obviously butt up against every wall before eventually, by trial and error, finding its way to the cheese. The, the crucial part was that Theseus, the electronic mouse version, had a series of uh, electronic relays, which could be used to remember which walls it brushed up against and where it found a path through. So when you put Theseus through again, it would remember its way through the maze. It wouldn't have to trial and error down every route. Shannon said, look, I've, I've got a system modeled on biology here. I've got this electronic mouse, which has managed to learn and remember its way through. But the crucial criticism there is that that's not how a mouse actually learns. Even though it's from this modeling biology approach, it's really just a novel rudimentary theory of machine learning rather than it is something which is 
emulating a biological architecture of, of the nervous system. But that's why these things always get so complicated because the biologist's notion of how the nervous system has developed enormously. You now have people who got the Nobel Prize for figuring out that in your brain you have different kinds of cells that have different kinds of memory for movement and for location. Perhaps you could reverse engineer an explanation of what the mouse was doing that, that, that fitted that. Uh, you know, we're very often with these interdisciplinary things. We're working with metaphor. We're working with analogy. We're using our understanding of current biology to inspire a thinking about a thing. And then you, you find the two things haven't really kept track of each other. And, and some of the debates then, I, I think, become a bit sterile and counterproductive because the biologists say, huh. Well, no, sorry, you got your biology wrong. And the computer science people say, yeah, but, you know, it was inspiring us to do this, to do this thing. Uh, you know, that's not really the point that we got our biology wrong. Yes, we probably did. And, and that's absolutely the debate, which is sort of one of the first cracks in cybernetics. And you could suggest this maybe one of the reasons why cybernetics isn't around anymore or as big as it was in the 50s is because you had this debate between all right, is this, is this just a, a, stim, a stimulation? Is this a way of inspiring us to think about new ways of building machines, taking inspiration from biology and from nature? Or are we actually building things which are representations of biological systems and we're just built, recreating them, building them as machines? And some people like Norbert Wiener would say, no, this is, the goal of cybernetics is representational. It is to build machines which emulate biology. And others would say that that's simply not going to be possible the value here is is showing new pathways for us to develop new machines that aren't necessarily exactly representing nature, but are still stimulating new productive research. And I take it the latter party won that battle. <laughs> of course, biology continued mm. to inspire with discuss discovery of things like genetic algorithms and so forth. But is that how cybernetics essentially disappeared then and got taken over by the by the modern? A quest for computer science and artificial intelligence. It's one of a lot of reasons. I, I mean, I think cybernetics also became very popular later in Russia. And so this association with the Soviet Union didn't do any favours to its reputation in the USA. Uh, I mean, there were other reasons as well. I talked earlier about um, very beginnings of AI. You had these two approaches, brain modelling and mind modelling. And at the time, they were both considered part of cybernetics. But as the, the mind modelling, the processing symbols and information takes off and really becomes the main thrust of AI through the 60s and 70s, they sort of retroactively say, oh, well, all the brain modeling stuff, the biology stuff is cybernetics, but the information stuff, that's us, that's artificial intelligence, that's computing, that's the, the information age, so to speak. So you get this retroactive branding, which contributes to cybernetics dying out a little bit. And the other thing, which is a little peripheral, is that cybernetics also becomes associated with various marginal, slightly kooky figures. Movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, we haven't talked about know, science fiction as an inspiration. I mean, no, you know, there's are. a whole, uh, you know, there's a whole broader context there is. which uh, is stimulating thinking about things beyond what the actual scientists are talking uh, about. And just the excitement mm. at mm. the period after the Second World War yeah. had ended that the the things which have been so rapidly developed mm. for wartime mm. purposes could be turned to peacetime and the advance mm. of science. Mm. It was absolutely tremendous feeling. Yeah. Well, all the things we talked about came out of paranormal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I was actually thinking about Scientology. Because L. Ron Hubbard, when he wrote Dianetics, the sort of founding text of Scientology, cited cybernetics as an influence. And it's, it's very questionable how much 
it was actually an influence to what extent he really understood cybernetics. But the association with Scientology didn't do cybernetics any favours. Okay, but, but that optimism about what had been done got channeled into the development of technical artificial intelligence, I take it. and Very rapidly, yes. Yes, I mean, that, that period in the 40s and dissipating somewhat in the 50s, but overtaken by... Of course, the formation of much more solid research groups and institutions in the 50s and but, 60s. I mean, and since then, we've seen quite a lot of waves with AI, haven't we? Great enthusiasm and ambition and then disappointment and then... But each wave has gone successively higher, hasn't it, in terms of its achievements? So. Well, and, you, you, you know, you, it is the way in which science gets caught up in the science hype cycle, if you like. You know, if you're being especially cynical every time somebody tries to have a conversation about a self-driving car, an AI car, an autonomous car, you say, yeah, it's a car with software in it. <laughs> ABS brakes, we've had them a long time, they're quite good. But you think calling it a self-driving car is better for driving the grant money? Well, it can be, but it, it, but then if you're sloppy with your terminology, if you're sloppy with your language, well, you're the philosopher, you know, then you miss things. You go off down blind alleys or you get caught up in a euphoria um, an enthusiasm. I don't know who. But I, I mean, Babbage, without the enthusiasm <laughs> that he was able to generate in his <laughs> funders, wouldn't have been able to do his work. There were some Swedish folks who actually successfully built a much, much simpler version of Babbage's engine, sniff, and sold it to the British government, <laughs> which Babbage himself... But you, you never hear about them. Babbage lived on in popular culture, as I say, as a sort of a figure of fun. There's a wonderful piece in Punch about Mr Babbage's patent novel writer. Well, you can sort of guess how it goes on. You know, it's poking fun both at, A, at Babbage, and B, at sloppy, sentimental Victorian novels by saying, you know, Mr Babbage has built a machine to write the things. And so in that sense, the influence of misdescription, of overhype, but we've all got used. We, we now well, live in the wash of right. hype, I don't mean, we? Yeah. We, we have to trumpet our research and tell the world how important it is. Uh, in order to persuade them to carry on funding our universities. and But, so but if you look we... at, you know, we have these conversations now about is AI biased, is AI bad, etc., etc. Where did those conversations start happening? I think they started happening in science fiction. Well, thank you very much. That's been extremely interesting. Just to, uh, to round off, I'd be interested to ask, what do you think these great pioneers would make of what's happened since their time and where we're going and the prospects for artificial intelligence and so on. Ursula. Ada Lovelace has become an icon and she was a, she's a sort of phenomenon, a phenomenon of the kind that doesn't exist today, perhaps. But what she was fascinated by, she was fascinated by technology, all the latest gadgets, all the latest inventions. She messed around with photography. She was intrigued by the early demonstrations of the telegraph. There's a wonderful letter where she, in this marvellous patrician air, she says, my goodness me, I could call a tradesman to come to a depot in London and tell him what I need done at my country house. <laughs> I think she'd have been enthusiastic about that. She wouldn't have been afraid of jumping into all kinds of conversations about things. Babbage was an enthusiast for technology. He had his different kind of in, uh, inventions. So... In that sense, people would have done. In many senses, if you look at the mid-19th century, there was a great optimism about the world. We look now at the mid-19th century and we see Britain, the imperialist nation, and all the bad things that were going on. Of course, the people, these kind of public intellectuals 
were not particularly looking at it that way. You know, they would have been token liberals. They're a bit anxious about Peterloo. But what they would have seen today, I don't know. But they might have kept that unbounded optimism. And do you think she would have been surprised by the extent to which information, if you like, mathematical, uh, digital information, which she foresaw as potentially modelling musical composition, the extent to which that has ended up modelling everything in our world? Well, I don't know if she would, because I think that was starting to happen. Florence Nightingale, for instance, we think of her as the lady with the lamp. Actually, she was collecting data about what was going on in field hospitals in the Crimea to show how they ought to be managed to control infection. Data-driven science was a thing that was starting to happen. Computers were tools to support data-driven science. But at the same time, you had this separation between that mechanistic aspect and the, the aspect of creativity, the sort of Wordsworth view of science and poetry being pretty much the same sort of thing, but poets are better at communicating what's going on. I think perhaps what might have surprised them is... The disappearance of the of the mystical, the religious, the inspirational from science, the way in which science has become more professionalised, more regimented. You can't be a polymath like that anymore. That might have surprised them, that they weren't worrying about their H indices, you know. Thank you very much. Um, Andrew, what do you think Turing would think of what's happened since his time? I don't think I can answer that, but it is a fair question in a way because Turing's probably the only person who actually spoke about the future and, and uh, said that he made a sort of 50-year prophecy that yes. there'd be big advances since the, after the time he was writing. Let's put some things into context. Turing did much more than things we've been talking about, and after 1950, he devoted all his time to mathematical biology. He went into a completely different field in science. And he would be regarded as a big figure in applied mathematics and, and biological science if he'd done nothing else. So he, he didn't actually go on just pursuing this, this programme. He didn't do very much for it at all, actually, after 1950. Um, so it's impossible to say how he, if he'd pursued and didn't die in 1954, what, where his interests would have gone and so on. So that's part of the context. Um, well, to be a bit provocative, I think he would have been very interested in something we haven't mentioned at all, uh, which is the big critique of artificial intelligence and Roger Penrose, which brings in the whole question of fundamental physics, quantum mechanics, which was actually very important to Turing's early thought, and actually draws a great deal on what Turing did in the 1930s, and actually with the beginning of, of his work, and which I think he was coming back to in thinking about physics and the uncomputable at uh, the end of his life. So he'd been very interested in that. I don't know if he'd agreed, but he had been that was absolutely on his wavelength. And Jacob, you weren't focusing on one particular figure, but the period of cybernetics. Um, how do you think those people would think now about what's happened since? Sure. Well, I think there's probably two different parts you could look at. And, and the first is, uh, as, we've, as we've talked about a little bit, the sort of recent rise of neural nets entering back into the artificial intelligence frame. And, and the second part is on the relationships between artificial intelligence, cybernetics, and as, as Andrew just talked about with fake news, with the sort of post-truth world we live in. And I'll, I'll go to the first bit, though, about neural networks. I think a lot of the cyberneticians would be um, very happy at, at seeing the rise of these more biologically modeled approaches to artificial intelligence uh, entering the picture in, in such a big way. I think that they would feel vindicated 
by those developments, though they might perhaps feel disappointed that cybernetics as a as a universal language for talking about these things, the fact that these things are still seen as distinct, the fact that you can separate neural networks from sort of symbolic artificial intelligence and and they have they have different ways of talking about these things, I think they might feel a little disappointed that cybernetics never really became the universal language which they hoped it would for all science. On the second point uh, I wanted to mention was this idea of cybernetics, artificial intelligence, and, and, and post-truth. I think one of the challenges that came to modeling brains in the late 1950s was how much information about the, the real world, uh, quote-unquote real world, is, is the brain processing, because they did uh, some cyberneticians did research looking at, um, at eyes. What, how much information processing does the eye do before it sends information to the brain? And the eye does, it does filter and process information. So if the brain's not getting a, a raw feed of reality, what does that mean for how we see the real world? And that was part of this wave of cybernetics called second order cybernetics, which basically said, okay, well, we've got these systems. They could be humans, machines, whatever. And we, they, they become stable through, through feedback. But if you, as the observer calibrating that system, have to know that as the observer, you might not even be seeing what is real. You're, the very act of observation is changing how you see this, this phenomenon. Then you yourself are part of this system as well. And so that opened up all of these questions okay, about, well, what is real and what is relative? That was a challenge to the brain modeling side of things and artificial intelligence, whereas the, the mind modeling thing stayed consistent. And so I think now they would perhaps wonder about, well, what, what is the relationship between artificial intelligence and this world we live in where people will claim some things are false and some things are true um, and they might not be representative of what people would call real. Um, there, there was a huge challenge to reality by cybernetics in the end and part of that came out of their artificial intelligence research. Thank you for listening and thanks again to Ursula, Andrew and Jacob for what has been a wonderful leap into the history of computing and AI, the latest in our first series of Future Makers. If you've got a suggestion for a future episode theme or a question to ask, do leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and let your friends know about the series. In our next episode, we'll be exploring whether artificial intelligence has changed our relationship with the truth. I'm Peter Milliken, and you've been listening to Future Makers. <laughs>